Hello, welcome back to The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with a research and policy bent. I'm Haley. And I'm Catherine. I've been on the team for a little over six months now, but this is the first time I get the pleasure of co-hosting alongside Haley. And it's so amazing to have you here, Catherine. I'm really excited for this episode. Per usual, we are a researcher and policy analyst translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with policy, practice, and trends in tech and business. Each month, we start with covering the latest in cutting-edge research in popular media and in the policy sphere. And then we pop over to our guest portion where we get to hear straight from an expert about the incredible work they're doing in developmental science. There are a lot of opinions and new information coming out about AI, and it's hard to piece together what's really going on and how it will impact parents, teachers, and children. Absolutely. And it's not like algorithms and other tools of the internet are new, or even that artificial intelligence is new. But one big shiny tool that's sort of broken the news and rocked the boat is ChatGPT, which was created by a company called OpenAI. The first prototype, ChatGPT-1, was made in 2018, but in November of 2022, ChatGPT-3 made a big splash when it was released to the public, and the everyday person could now interact with this new cutting-edge technology in a way that people couldn't really do before. You can sort of think of ChatGPT as an engine that got a serious upgrade in horsepower that transformed a horse and buggy into something like a jet airplane. The result of super fast growth like this is that there's a lot that we actually still don't understand about these tools. They're just outpacing what we can learn about them. Exactly. ChatGPT is like an engine, which means it can power any number of tools. And because we're concerned with children and the child research community at the table, the big questions for developmentalists and educators are whether we can create teaching tools with it and what the implications are for the way we teach the way we learn, and the way we parent. In the past, other forms of technology have changed where children get their information from. For example, children have been learning from TV shows for multiple generations now. Think about Dora the Explorer teaching children Spanish, Sesame Street teaching children letters and the alphabet, and Bluey teaching children about processing their emotions, all in the company of a caregiver who can build on those lessons through those critically important serve and return exchanges that we've talked about on the show before. Wink, wink, go listen to those episodes. Totally. The major difference between those and ChatGPT is that humans wrote prepared scripts for those shows and the human creators behind their content themselves had or consulted people who had degrees in child development or training around how to leverage media to support children's learning. ChatGPT, by contrast, iterates on the input that is received from all users across all domains on the internet, regardless of whether those inputs are riddled with bias, misinformation, or are generally unreliable. Additionally, it dramatically changes the education and employment landscape. Children don't just learn content while in school. They learn how to learn. If the learning process, which involves evaluating sources, summarizing content, and critically thinking through problems is all done by a machine, then what are they learning? What skills should education focus on cultivating in children to prepare them for adulthood? How might interacting with ChatGPT be detrimental to a human teacher and affect social-emotional development? Yeah, it's no joke. An article in the Washington Post written by a sociology professor at Rutgers University 
argues that AI can assist getting information, but, quote, cannot help them truly learn because children's brains evolve to learn in a social environment, not necessarily in isolation with a machine. By using AI as a replacement for other methods of skill development, children can essentially level up without learning. Going back to our engine metaphor, if ChatGPT does the work of finding the information, answering questions, writing essays, synthesizing arguments, etc., children's brains don't get the opportunity to do the work and so don't grow. And so to your point, it raises questions not only about the place of AI and tools like ChatGPT in the classroom or early learning settings, but if these tools are widely available anyway, about what we ultimately think education should be for and what it should accomplish. And these questions go all the way up through the highest tiers of government, too. Senate hearings this summer called on the testimony of tech creators and entrepreneurs to determine the range of different strategies we should consider to mitigate these risks. A few ideas were raised. First, industries must disclose what is human-generated and what comes from algorithms. Next, independent audits can create something like nutritional labels for AI products and services so consumers can be informed. Another suggestion was instituting a licensing requirement like we have for other risky activities like driving cars or starting a business, so that individuals are required to be trained on how to use an AI safely before being able to use them for personal or public use. Such a licensing procedure would also obviously limit children's access to this technology. But is that for the best? And if it is, is it enough? Definitely open questions. And there seems to be continued debate even among leading organizations on the subject. A document released by the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund, which is a mouthful, I have to say, summarized the risks to children, but also mentioned opportunities for children to benefit from AI. The implementation of an ethical review board proposed during the Senate hearings could be a possible solution for releasing AI products and services aimed to benefit children or to protect them from its more pernicious impacts. For example, AI could supplement traditional education and provide more accessibility and support. AI could power robotic arms, provide individualized tutoring, help plan healthier and safer cities for children to grow up in, and even be used as virtual therapists to those who are unable to access or afford traditional forms of therapy. But given how much uncertainty there is around the development of these tools, we need the scientific community front and center in this debate. I agree. And that's great, since researchers are making some really exciting discoveries that are critical to forming policies around AI usage. And I think this is actually the perfect time to welcome one of them to the table. I agree completely. Want to welcome her in? Let's do it. When we were young, we meaning millennials and older, sorry, Haley, I'm showing our age, there weren't smartphones or tablets, let alone voice assistants like Siri, Alexa, and Google Voice. Tech is changing how we socialize, how we spend our time, and most relevant to this podcast, how we learn. Children are watching us use these devices and are in their own right a target demographic for which tech is being developed. We have so many unanswered questions about how this landscape affects the development and growth of children. So I'm pleased to introduce our guest today, who is a pioneer researcher investigating how children use and understand these technologies and in what way it can be beneficial or harmful. 
Do children think of Siri and Alexa as people or as machines? Do children trust these devices more or less or the same as parents and teachers? What do children think the internet can do? These are some of the questions that Lauren Gerard Hallam addresses. She holds an MA from NYU in applied psychology and is a current fifth year PhD candidate at the University of Louisville. In addition to her research, Lauren holds numerous leadership positions for scientific conferences and community initiatives like Our Ladies. We are so happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making the time to chat with us. Of course, happy to be here. First, I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about the context of this research. Is it education? Is it psychology? Is it computer science? It really depends on the angle that you want to get at the, the research from. So I consider myself a cognitive developmental psychologist, which means that I'm primarily interested in what children think and learn from technology, rather than thinking about something like, say, how technology is designed in order to be applicable to or interesting to children. Very cool. So what is the study of cognition? What is the study of development? And how is cognitive development situated with your work on technology and the way children think about it? Sure. So cognition is the study of our minds, uh, particularly not necessarily our brains, right? We have these structures that all sort of function in similar ways, and you can study that. Neuroscience is a field just devoted to that topic. But cognition is really about the underlying more metaphysical structure of the mind, the idea that we have certain ways that we think about things and that those thoughts then interpret into actions and that those actions and behaviors can be studied by going back to the base of the way that we think about things. And we see that in everything from very set processes like how we pay attention or how our working memory works to things that are more shifting with age, things that vary with development. And that's where the development piece of this comes in, is that certain parts of cognition of the way that we think change with time as we enter different developmental milestones as we age. So we would expect that a four to six-year-old might handle some problem out in the world differently than we would expect of, say, a teenager who will still handle things differently than a young adult who will still handle things differently than an older adult. So cognitive development is the synergy of those two things. It's the idea that we have our minds and that they're functioning in ways that we can interpret, anticipate, or expect, but that those interpretations, anticipations, and expectations change as we go through development and as we age and get older. That really is amazing. Uh, my background is in social cognition, so this sort of uh, marrying between the experience of the mind, the sort of like internal workings of the mind and how it interacts with the external world is something that's very near and dear to my heart as well. I'm curious about your origin story, especially given how uh, these different kinds of technologies and AI and other re you know related resources are relatively new, I think, in the grand scheme of the information age. How exactly did you find yourself in this line of research? Like what brought you here? Sure. I think that's an excellent question. Uh, and I laugh because I am what's called a first generation student, which means that no one in my family had been to a four year college before. So in my immediate line uh, of family, I'm the first in my family to get a bachelor's degree, the first in my family to get a master's degree, and I will be the first in my family to get a PhD, which means that I sort of fell into what is research and how do I answer these sort of burning questions that I have a little backwards. This was not something that was a 
a linear journey for me. So when I was in undergrad, I was a theater and neuroscience double major at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, go Dinsk. And I did my research with a psychology neuroscience double positioned professor, Dr. Rice. Uh, and he looked at how rats and mice think about dopamine in the brain uh, or how dopamine in the brain with rats and mice is impacted in particular by substance use and stimulant use and different uh, PTSD targeting drugs, which is very, very different than the thing that I do now. And so I left that experience knowing that I had really enjoyed research, but that I really wanted to work with people and that the match just wasn't there for me with a neuroscience PhD, particularly looking at other species. And I certainly could have gone into neuroscience related to humans and behavior, but I had a soft spot for the psychology part of things. So I went and got my master's at NYU and thought that I wanted to be a counselor and that that would give me the people fix that I was looking for. And I'd sort of al always known that I wanted to work with children. So I've worked at preschools. I came up through theater education. Once I was old enough, I started volunteering with the theater education program I was a part of and then eventually taught classes and was really interested in how theater impacts mental health. And so being a counselor in New York felt like an opportunity to do that. And while I was there, I had an internship at Hackensack Hospital in New Jersey, and I was working with child life workers as well as drama therapists, which is what I was getting my master's in. And I was working largely with children who were terminally ill or who had family members who were terminally ill or who were in some sort of acute care, like a, like a critical care unit. And while I was there, I would see kids playing on their iPads, talking to their parents about what was going on, but then sneakily like looking it up on their phone after that conversation was over. And we were encouraged while working there, you know, if the kid really likes interacting with technology, use the technology in order to connect with them and talk with them about their circumstances and about what's going on. It's something I would do regularly. And I had all of these questions about, well, if they hear a piece of, of misinformation or something really technical that they don't understand, and then they're relying on the internet, how do they know what to trust? How do we sort of use this as uh, a way of truth telling or storytelling while also providing like barriers and boundaries and safety? And I had all of these questions and I talked to my advisor there and she said, well, you know, those are research questions and they're interesting, but we're really here to sit in a room with a child and help them feel comfortable. If you want the answers to those questions, you really should consider a career in research. And it was the first time that I sort of realized, oh, I can do what I did in undergrad but it doesn't have to be with rats and mice. It doesn't have to be that because that was the first lab I was ever in, it was also the last lab I was ever in, which I think was sort of the thought of like, this is a lab and this is what a lab looks like. Uh, and so I looked into human development, social cognition, developmental cognition, PhD programs, sent out some probes to potential professors and ended up with Dr. Judith Danovich at University of Louisville because she had just written a piece in the New York Times about uh, Alexa and her son interacting with these devices and being curious about what that meant. I got a hold of her and said, hey, are you accepting students? She said, yes, and here I am. <laughs> Quite the journey. Yeah, definitely quite the journey, but also this like beautiful moment of clarity where you're watching kids interacting with technology and you're like, wait a second, what's actually the story that's playing out here and how can I sort of tap into this narrative? So that's, that's really cool. And also amazing that you had such a supportive advisor who was like, this sounds like you're interested in research. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, it's funny looking back on it because supportive, I think, is such a nice way to put it. I remember having sort of mixed feelings about leaving counseling and leaving something really applied. And I had looked very briefly at clinical PhDs, but just really felt that if I had stayed sort of in the work that I did, I wasn't going to have the time to answer the questions that I wanted to answer as fully as I wanted to answer them, which is why I sort of made that transition out. But it was nice to have her, but also it, it hurt in some ways to realize that I was more inclined towards one thing than the thing I'd been doing for a couple of years. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Do you feel like there's still a good applied angle to the research that you're doing, given the sort of like real world consequences for the answers that you're uncovering? I can't say that I've ever talked to a parent or researcher in my time since joining UofL or educator who hasn't been interested in what's going on with technology, right? So when I very first started, everyone said, oh, yeah, you know, I just got a Google Home. Spotify had just done this sort of initiative where they sent people a Google Home for free if you got a Spotify account. And then a couple of years after that, you know, everyone's saying, oh, what do you think about ChatGPT? The sort of the nature of this is that there's always a question about, oh, what does that mean? That's exciting. I love that that's what you research. And parents and educators in particular are really excited to hear about it. So I'm never far from that hospital unit all those years ago in terms of my my interests and the people that I hope that I'm reaching have remained relatively the same. Amazing. I know one of my burning questions that I'm sure our listeners also would love to know is how do children interact differently with technology than they do with people? That's a really wonderful question. And I think sort of at the root of what we try to do, those of us who are in cognitive development and are interested in non-human sources in general, whether it be smaller technologies like me, I'm interested in things, right, that you can fit in your pocket or have on your desk, all the way up to social robots that sort of look and act like humans but are not humans is, you know, what are the differences? What are kids picking up on or not picking up on uh, that they do with human informants? So I would say that one of the starkest differences that I notice is that kids have expectations for technology that they do not put on people. So kids will very readily say when I ask them, you know, why do you think that the technology would have the answer to this question? Well, it has to know everything. It's connected to the internet, it's connected to all of these other computers, so it must know where kids around the same age, so we'll see this a lot with nine and 10 year olds, will start to say, well, a person can't know everything all at once. They'd have to actually use the internet or a book, write another source in order to gather information. Maybe they become an expert, but even then expertise is limited and kids have some understanding of that as they age. But when we think about the internet, Whether kids are thinking about that as an informant in its own right or an amalgamation of informants, there is this idea that it's sort of as close to omniscience as we can get in our day-to-day life. It has all of this access and it should be able to access that information to answer their questions. Even little, very little kids will get frustrated if the internet doesn't know. Where with parents and teachers, there's more of an, okay, well, I guess that's the answer. Not always. They'll try to correct circular responses and things like that. But there's more willingness to accept that there's a boundary where technology is supposed to be limitless, right? Yeah. So there's this sort of infallibility about the internet as like a monolith of information that just sort of like exists in the ether. Um, I'm really interested by this phrase that you used about either it being an information source in and of itself or like an amalgamation of sources. What do young children understand about like where the internet actually comes from and how, how it was made and the various components that make up the internet ecospace? 
I would say that this is a question right on the bleeding edge of the kind of science that we're trying to do. And that's something that we've been starting to tease apart in a series of experiments, not just me, but anyone in this line of work is starting to ask this question. Ian Chandler Campbell, who's currently with Candace Mills uh, in Texas. Yes, Ian is great, but he sort of has this question as well. And we've had drawn out philosophical conversations of like, what do you think kids think it is? And something that we definitely notice, again, around age nine or 10. So something happens at literacy around age seven or eight, where kids start to say, oh, I love using the internet. It has the answers that I want. I get to use it sometimes on my own. I know how to type out a question into Google, right? They're starting to get those things. And then by nine or 10, you start to see the, well, I still love it but it's not always accurate because it's not actually just giving me one answer. It's giving me many, many answers and I may have to pick that answer. So we'll see kids occasionally use language like, well, the answer at the top, so of a Google search engine search result, the answer at the top is usually the best answer or the answer that you might want most. We even had one kid just very anecdotally who said offhand, well, sometimes the answer at the top is an ad. So then you should go to the second answer because you don't want to trust the ad. And kids in advertising and what they recognize online is a whole different side of tech research. But we do get kids as they age who start to think of the internet as an amalgamation. But young kids in particular seem to think of the internet as a single source. Certainly when I pit the internet or Google against a teacher or a person and ask who they'd rather ask. There's no none of this fight around like, well, asking the internet is actually asking a bunch of people where older kids start to acknowledge that. A funny anecdote from my own research, we're seeing how interacting um, with an agent or an AI telling a story using mathematical terms might increase learning of those mathematical terms. And one of those mathematical terms is add, as in addition. But we take a baseline and we just ask, you know, what does the word add mean? And at least three kids have been like, oh, that's like an advertisement. Like they add as in an advertisement rather than initially going to add as an addition, which I think is very, very interesting. That's amazing. I, I know my nephews are very young and have like dedicated screen screen time to be able to interact with these kinds of things. And um, so it's interesting, especially like being out in public and, and seeing just how young of children we're really pushing the envelope and exposing to these different kinds of resources. And on the one hand, it's, it's really cool just to sort of see how technology as like an infrastructure in and of itself is getting threaded into our daily lives. Um, but I know talking to a number of different people, including teachers, my sister is one, my brother-in-law is one, there's also a lot of trepidation around that. Um, and you obviously have pointed to this in parents' concerns around ads and, and privacy. But in terms of the classroom space, do you see there being any upside to these new technologies? Are there you know things that we can be sort of optimistic about in terms of their creation and their daily use? Absolutely. I I actually think that there is some benefit to the idea that companies like Amazon or like Google are looking to develop programs that are specifically designed for children. I think we can look at billion dollar tech companies with a healthy dose of skepticism. And I think that that is often warranted. But I think there's something to be said for user facing design, no matter who the user is. And I think that we do need to get on board that 
children are users and using these things in classrooms means that they have access to really amazing content, videos, social media content uh, driven for children's learning in particular. And I think as long as companies can set up safeguards and be very honest and transparent about how data from classrooms is getting used and have a conversation with sort of community advisory boards or whatever sort of wing they're doing that with, getting teacher input, uh, can lead to really successful partnerships and collaborations where technology can be used in successful and safe ways in the classroom. But I just think the ability to pull up, if you're interested in ancient Egypt and you have some free time in a classroom to pull up, well, here's you know a video about the mummification process from PBS from 2007, and let's see how that compares to, you know, someone talking about what it is to live and die in Egypt now in 2023, and that becomes a part of your project. How cool is that? Uh, and so I definitely think that there's ways to harness this. It's about giving teachers the time, space, resource, and class size to be able to do those things appropriately. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of as like safe use of the internet. Like the the picture that you paint is one that's really beautiful. This student who's able to really expand their sort of learning experience just by pursuing these questions and leveraging all of these tools at, at their fingertips. But I think when I hear a lot of people, parents and teachers and other folks sort of in the public space talking about safe internet use, it's never really crystallized as any anything in particular in, in my mind. And so I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Like, obviously, protection from nefarious agents who are, you know, working whatever they do on the internet. But, um, but in terms of, you know, child's experience of, of using these kinds of technologies, what does safe use mean? So that's something that I think that I've started to tease apart in a little bit of the work that I currently have either under review or in progress or as part of my dissertation where I'm asking about other people's personal information. And obviously that is just a toe in the water. That's a very sort of basic place to start. But for me, the query as a cognitive developmental researcher rather than as a UX researcher, I'm not so interested in how these safeguards are made. I'm more interested in what children think exists out in the world? Do they understand that there are safeguards? Does that understanding vary with age? Do they like that some of their data is or isn't private? Susan Gelman has really wonderful work out of the University of Michigan on that kids like that their parents can tell where they are using GPS coordinates sometimes. So, you know, there's this idea that kids may have different understanding of safeguards than adults do. And so for me, by asking about personal information, do you think you can get information about regular people online? Do you think you should be able to get that information online? Do you understand how you may or may not be able to access those things based on what we choose to put online and who is choosing to put information about you online uh, and asking those sorts of questions to see what kids think is going on is sort of the angle that I want to come at. Um, and I'm really seeing that there are things that I wish kids knew, particularly about how easy it is to put your personal information online, that even my 11 and 12 year old kids who will report spontaneously that, oh, yeah, I see TikTok or I, you know, have a Facebook or whatever, are still saying, no, the Internet couldn't tell me my friend's birthday. And, you know, I sort of am skeptically like, have you never seen your friend post, oh, I'm 15 today, can't wait to have my party. Guess what? You now know their birthday. Uh, but that that stuff isn't always being made. And so I think it's important to probe what kids do or don't know about internet safety. And how much do you think explicitly telling children about internet usage and like engaging with them in dialogue 
will cause their behavior to change or children just kind of like fearless explorers and will do as they do despite parents wanting to try to curtail their behavior. I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit of both, right? I think there's this idea that the more you make something mysterious and unknown, the more kids want to interact with it. So I always think, and I've thought since working in a hospital with really scary illnesses and injuries, you have to be honest and say honest things at a child's level of understanding rather than assuming their level of understanding and therefore refusing to talk to them at all until they can engage in that conversation in an adult way. You'll be waiting forever. And by then, they will have learned things anyway, and they may not be the right things. And I think you could extend that way past technology if you wanted to. But in general, I think that having honest conversations with kids will help them to make smart choices, which isn't to say that that is a panacea or that you can't, that you shouldn't provide extreme oversight and scaffolding and co-watching or viewing of websites and videos and things online. I absolutely think that that has to be a part of it too. But explaining to kids why in a way that they understand, I think, is a really powerful and impactful step. And I know those kids when they come in to do studies because of the way that they talk about Internet literacy. That's really cool. Why do you think the conversation is so fearful about AI and ChatGPT and these voice assistants and the collection of child data like what are we trying to protect? Is it important? Why is there so much fear about it? And is it warranted? So I had a, an older collaborator recently tell me about the calculator coming out while I think they were in high school or college and that the calculator actually caused a lot of fear. Our kids aren't going to learn math anymore. They're going to start cheating on exams. The TI-84, you know, is so much smaller than anything we've seen. They're going to be able to sneak them in. They're going to get lazy. They're going to start relying on this device. And it's so interesting to me because I obviously didn't realize that that conversation occurred, but I heard it when cell phones started showing up at my high school, right? And I hear it now with things like ChatGPT. We can't tell our kids about that. We can't have them using that. It's so surreptitious. It's sometimes wrong. How will they know? How will they recognize? And the answer is by getting the same education about these things that they get about any other erroneous source, right? You know, when they're learning about primary and secondary sources and how some things have bias and are more trustworthy than others. Turns out we can have that same conversation that we already have about print materials, about online materials. And that's not to say that I don't think the fear is warranted. I think that anyone who has existed during the technological boom that has occurred since the 90s knows that this is happening at way more rapid a pace than any pre-tech print source or other source of information, right? You know, getting to your library does not feel the same as getting online. And so I think some of that fear is warranted. This is moving really fast. And it sort of feels like the youngest members of our society will soon eclipse us all in knowledge. And then they'll have to teach themselves because no one else will know what's happening. And so I think that the fear makes sense. But I also think that if we embrace that, we lose out on opportunities for benefits. Do you feel like AI as a relatively novel form of technology is sort of like a different ball of wax in terms of how user driven it is and like where the content that sort of makes up the ecosystem that you interact with when you're using it, like how that actually happens? Yeah, I think that AI is inherently different in a way that does make it more difficult to define or put parameters around 
what we know kids understand or what we want them to learn or take away, I think it is much harder to look at a child's interaction with an interface like ChatGPT and sort of rate its positive or positives and negatives or think about if kids came away learning the information because it's changing so rapidly that its structure could look different a week from now. And then we're rewriting our rules and we're rewriting our scripts and rerunning our same experiments and getting vastly different results. And that's something even in the the internet studying branch of cognitive development, we haven't seen yet, right? I still cite papers from 2003, 2010, 2012 about computers or the internet, and I can because those things haven't functionally changed so much that I think that kids now understand them inherently differently, where chat GPT is changing all the time, right? We I just saw a conversation of the, as it amalgamates more sources, it's actually getting dumber. And so if you looked at earlier versions, it was more likely to have a correct answer than now. So we need to th- take things like checking alternative sources much more seriously, where if we had done a study before, we might not have included that as a thing that we were looking for or priming for. So I think it's hard when you're doing something that evolves so constantly, but I also think that's what makes my line of work really fun. Yeah, definitely. It's you're like constantly innovating on the types of questions that you're asking, the tools that you're using to measure those questions. And um, so, yeah, it's definitely it's got to be an exciting time to be doing this work. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm curious about um, some of the interactions that you have with kids that you include in your research when you're asking them these questions about use of the internet and you note that there are some like notable differences between children sort of depending on their internet literacy. Are you also asking about AI and sort of learning technologies like that? Or is it sort of about, about the internet writ large? So I ask about a few different things in my line of work. So I have one line of work that looks specifically at smart speakers because I was interested in the spontaneous conversations that particularly very young children can have with these devices. Um, I'm not letting them have their own conversations in at least in small part, because I don't have the programming skills or the the money to hire a programmer to make that super possible. Um, but I do look at what they think about an adult's seemingly spontaneous interaction with these devices um, and whether they're willing to trust the information that these things that can respond sort of spontaneously give, which is probably the closest that I get to what you would consider like traditional AI. Um, but I've also looked at Google search in particular, so search engines and the internet writ large, as you say. So sort of a vast scope of, I like to call it the internet of things. Jason Yip in Seattle uses that term and I really like it. So the idea that all of these things are bound by the internet, but they act in different ways. To me, AI is just a nice new extension of that. And I would be surprised if in the next couple of years, I don't have a paper that looks at a generative AI or a summarizing AI like ChatGPT, because that is the direction things are going. And I think that that sort of software is going to start to be what's behind, say, Alexa or Google Home. So I'm there, but I am not yet quite right there when it comes to that sort of stuff, because it is so new and I have a dissertation to write. Real quick, just for people who might not know, how is generative AI different from what we've had before? Right. So the nice thing about ChatGPT or the scary thing about ChatGPT or the fallible thing about ChatGPT, depending on who you ask, is that it is not just pulling from existing resources based on key terms, which is what a Google search does. And that's still a part of what's happening with ChatGPT, but it's going a step further. 
it's pulling the information that it thinks you want based on your keywords or whatever task you have asked of it. Thanks, of course, being my shorthand for the algorithmic process that uh, it's programmed to, to undertake. And it is then summarizing that information in a new way. So using its own words, as it were, in order to give you that information in what it considers to be an accessible or palatable fashion. So instead of a Google search, which will pull up exactly what you said with websites that have that thing reiterated the most, it's using those, say, top three, top five web searches and saying, okay, here's the information that I think you want summarized for you. It's almost like your Google search was given its own Wikipedia page. So Catherine's Google search on, I'll use ancient Egypt, on October or August 14th, 2023 at 5.40 p.m., Here's the information that I can give you about ancient Egypt, and that is now its own Wikipedia page because you told me you were interested in X, Y, and Z. So here's some information about X, Y, and Z. So this capacity to generate responses and not just regurgitate what's already on the internet, do you think that increases children's possible perception of voice assistants or AI as social agents versus just a tool? So obviously that would be highly speculative to talk about at this point because I don't have a study or numbers, which I always want to sort of caveat what my research actually shows versus what I just sort of think about things. But given what we know about parasocial relationships, so Sandy Calvert's work has looked at voice assistants and has suggested that young children will form a sort of pseudo parasocial relationship with these devices based on parent report. We've seen something similar with children's willingness to attribute social qualities to voice assistants. But yes, I would suspect that if something is talking to a child and having a conversation in what feels like a much more natural way than engaging with a Google search, right, instead of having to click on a website that will then tell me the answer if I scroll to the right place and look for the information. It's just telling me, hey, here is the answer, which is what ChatGPT will do for you. Yeah, that feels much more like a conversation with another human who's just typing on the other side. And given that some very young children think that Alexa is just a little person and a speaker, I would suspect that we will see similar patterns with ChatGPT. I mean, even uh, junior high school students, when they are asked to visualize Google and draw what Google is, will draw groups of people working together at computers. It's very hard to get children to separate an algorithmic process, an internet-based device, from the people who are ultimately behind these things. They're not wrong. They're just often privileging people where adults who talk about these things probably would not. I listened to an episode from The Daily the other day where they were talking about the impact of ChatGPT more in a higher education context and how like college students are using it to supplant their own work in, in their classes. And the reporter used the program to create a mimicry of her own work just to see what it could do. And so she asked it to write a brief article using like her tone of voice in the way that she would write something. And she said it was actually kind of creepy, like how close it was. And, and so I'm curious, I, it doesn't sound like this is the immediate focus of your work right now, but whether this is something that you would consider studying the future, whether or not people can tell the difference. Like if, if we are seeing a bit more, and I know this butts into some of our questions around like intellectual ownership and, um, you know, whose materials we are actually like promulgating across the internet. But if those things do sort of become such good copies of what a child might seek out from a teacher or a caregiver or some other kind of trusted adult source, 
what kinds of tools would they then need, like cognitive tools would they then need to sort of figure out what testimony to go with? So I think that this is a really wonderful question because I think it gets at sort of that core fear, right? We've been talking a lot about how with technology research inevitably become, comes the idea that we have fear around what this technology is or isn't capable of and how we'll be able to parse those things apart. I think that as humans, we have this really innate desire and using innate is probably going to get me into trouble, this really deep desire to retain that we're human. Only we have humanness. Nothing else should look like us, even if it's a thing that we created. And I think that when it comes to kids trusting something that looks and sounds an awful lot like a human source, the way that ChatGPT can in fact mimic someone's tone or, uh, you know, little idiosyncrasies or whatever mannerisms. And as that sort of gets developed, because I do think we also have insatiable curiosity and we will continue to try to make things that are as close to us as we can, um, in part because we like our own self-reliability and we want things to be as reliable as we are. But I think that kids use a lot of markers that we don't use as adults that will actually help keep them maybe a little safer than us. So I think about there's research that shows that kids really value face-to-face experience. So if they recognize that ChatGPT is a technology that is driven by the internet, which I think is a very teachable concept, they will also recognize then that it can't actually have face-to-face experience. Even if it's telling you that it's information that it got from a face-to-face experience, if you've explained that it can do that, they're probably still going to prep a person where they see eyes and a face and a body that can orient because kids are very sensitive to those physical cues. Kids are very sensitive to calling a person an expert. And although we don't have the research on this, it does seem that they somewhat differentiate between a human expert and technology, which can act sort of like an expert, but ultimately isn't an expert in the way it critically thinks about a subject. They can just give you what might be an expert's opinion, but you'll have to do the finding to figure out if that's actually true. And so I think the fact that kids have other cues that they're sensitive to, like expertise, like a physical form and direct experience, will help safeguard them a little bit. I think it's going to be much harder for college students and adults and the professors grading those college students' tests and essays to tell the difference. But I also think we're a long way from that. Uh, I certainly think that at this point, if a chat GPT assignment comes across your desk, you probably know it. On that point of them not attributing certain things, what are they attributing to digital voice assistants? So with digital voice assistants like Siri and Alexa in particular, we see that they attribute some knowledge capacity so it can think and it can know. And I don't think that that's totally surprising because that's sort of the shorthand that we use as adults. And I think that that shorthand for an algorithm is really normal. But it does cause this sort of confusion about, well, if a person can think and this device can think, then are they really that different? And so I will catch myself at times saying, oh, yeah, Shazam knows what this song is. Okay, well, Shazam doesn't know what this song is, but it can find it for me. But even the act of finding then is sort of pseudo-human. When we start to parse these things down, we do tend to anthropomorphize when we do that. Um, And so kids are, are liable to do that as well. They will talk about it thinking or knowing. Small children, so my work and then Tess Flanagan's work with Tamara Kushner out of Cornell slash Duke um, has looked at this and they found that, you know, kids 
think that these devices have some moral agency, so it should be free from harm, you shouldn't be rude to it, you should be polite or nice to it, um, that it might have feelings, so if you were to give it away, that might make it sad. We see this in particular with children who are six and younger, so that they do sort of grow out of that, but they're, they're attributing a little bit of moral and some social characteristics to these devices, sort of in line with a parasocial relationship. So yeah, it can be my buddy. I don't know if I want to hang out with it when I'm lonely, right? I didn't see as high numbers in a study that I did that where I asked, do you want to hang out with it if you're lonely? Kids were sort of ambivalent. But when I said, is it your friend? There was a group of kids that said, yeah, it's, a, it's someone I can be friendly with. So some, some social, little bit of moral in there as well. You've told us quite a bit about how there are changes over developmental time in terms of how kids are interacting with these different kinds of technologies. I'm curious about whether either through your own work or through peer colleagues' work, you're also seeing cultural differences in how kids interact with these tools. Yeah, so I have some recent work that looks at uh, children's conceptions about the internet in particular at large, and it's with collaborators in Wuhan, China through Central China Normal University. And we found that there are differences in the way that Chinese children and American children approach the internet. These differences are related to their beliefs about the accuracy of the internet, so how correct they think the information that you can find on the internet is, its scope, so the different kinds of information that you might be able to get from the internet, and then their comfort using it independently. So American children tend to believe that the internet is a little less accurate and has a little more uh, variation in terms of the kinds of information you can get, and they're a little more comfortable using it independently a little earlier in their age trajectory. So this was with six to 10-year-old kids, and we found that American children grew more comfortable a little bit earlier, which I think might be related to when children are able to start independently experiencing the internet. I suspect that in America, parents will co-view with their children, just like parents in China, but may start to allow children to type in their own search query a little earlier, things like that. Interesting. To what do you attribute some of those differences? Is that something that you're thinking about in the sort of like implication section of that paper? Of course, yeah. So when we think about why we see some of these trends in terms of differences between American and Chinese children, we think about internet attitudes as a whole. So what is happening with internet attitudes generally in America versus internet attitudes generally in China? And certainly, you know, we can't necessarily speak to, because we're not doing empirical studies on these things, what exactly is happening and what children are or are not aware of. But we can think about cultural attitudes and what those things might mean. So I think a really nice example is that there is law in China that talks about how much children interact with video games or how much they're online or the kinds of sites that they're able to access. Uh, But there's also law that gives every classroom, elementary school classroom in China, access to the internet, which is something that we see broadly here in America, but isn't necessarily like a written rule in the same way. Um, And so I think that that's just one example of a place where there may be differences that then trickle down to the youngest members of society, uh, simply because one has a more structured look at rules where here in America, we're really big on recommendations. So the American Pediatric Association recommends a certain amount of screen time, but there's a wide variety of what's happening within that recommendation, because we also allow a lot of free range exploration for parents to sort of decide where I think that in more collectivist cultures in general, there is maybe less variability in the kinds of experiences that children are having. On that point of accuracy, 
when we think about types of information, there's types of information about predicting the future, or the past, or like present circumstances. And I think some of your work explored um, what types of information that voice assistants can be accurate about. Uh, would you mind talking to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So we found in the study that looked at both Chinese and American children's attitudes that American children were a little warier at times of the internet in terms of its accuracy. So they gave, this was on a rating scale. So I also want to make sure that I'm making very clear, this isn't necessarily like, this is what it is and this is what's happening. But we did find that American children rated the internet as being a little less accurate than Chinese children. And so when we look at kinds of information that American children, because I haven't done this work cross-culturally, um, when we look at the kinds of information that American children think that they can get online, we see that they believe that the internet is preferable to a person. So seven to 10 year old children um, found the internet preferable to a person when you are looking for the kinds of information that might not be like static history information. So at roughly relatively the same rates, children will say a person could know a thing about the past, just like a piece of technology could know a thing about the past. But when we're looking at kinds of information like current events, so what is the weather outside going to do, you know, in an hour or what is it doing right now in a place where I don't live or predictable future events. So things like, uh, who might win the big game on Sunday? If you looked at two teams' averages, could you sort of you know, predict a winner? We see that kids, as they age in particular, so as they hit that sort of nine or 10-year-old sweet spot that I've talked about a little bit, will start to preference the computer over the person because they believe both that the computer can update a little more quickly than a person might be able to learn the information and that they can then use the information that that has been gathered on the internet to form a prediction. We'll even get some 10-year-olds who will throw out algorithm, which I always think is super exciting when a kid knows that there's something that's happening that is a patternized experience that the internet is pulling from. For our listeners who maybe aren't deeply steeped in the tea of developmental research, what do you think is actually happening around the nine or 10 sweet spot that sort of contributes to this shift in thinking about the internet as an accurate resource? Oh, what a great question. So I think that when we think about developmental shifts and milestones, a lot of attention within developmental literature is paid to around seven or eight. Not always, but you'll see a ton of studies that are four to eight. You'll even see studies that are four and five and then seven and eight. I have one of my own. Um, and it's this idea that four and five-year-olds are pre-literacy and then seven and eight-year-olds are in that sort of garnering first literacy, immediately post-literacy age. It's also when kids, if they we're home for preschool, we'll go to school for the first time. And so they get all of this interaction with teachers that's like sudden and noon, new, and they're interacting with peers that aren't their siblings. And so it's sort of this exciting developmental time. And I think it is, in fact, a very exciting developmental time. But when we look at technology, nine and 10, particularly 10, even as, as old as 12, you see that there is increasing understanding of the complexity of the internet and how it functions. And so for me, I will actually see some similarities between my four to eight-year-olds that then start to break off and change at around age nine. And I think what's happening there is one, literacy is strengthening, which is going to be true of any text-based source when you're looking at differences. Um, two, 
their critical thinking skills are and their problem solving skills are increasing. And as they start entering this sort of age where, you know, we go from our early elementary school to later elementary school, middle school, depending on when that starts for you in that nine to 12 year old range, uh, you are starting to get more practice in what's a primary source, what's a secondary source, what does it mean to go online? It's when kids are first starting to interact with social media, or they're starting to understand that YouTube is people just like them that are creating videos, and they too could create a YouTube video, and they may not be an expert in a thing they could make a video about, right? They're garnering knowledge and cognition that is increasing their attention, their capacity for problem solving is increasing, but they're also increasing in their experiences online. And I think that as you see those experiences get richer and develop, you also see that that becomes that developmental sweet spot. So I just like to think that the richness of internet experiences hits a little later than the cognitive change that happens with seven and eight year olds. Do you have any ideas about how parents, educators, policymakers could access accurate information about how technology is affecting children's social development and learning? I think that there's a variety of organizations that can help with those things. So for parents, I think Common Sense Media is the, the first thing that springs to mind. And I think it's pretty well known. So I don't know how prescriptive that piece of advice is. But for parents, if you haven't done this, and for educators too, um, you know, Common Core and standards like that are long documents. And they do, starting at around third or fourth grade, have recommendations for literacy. I would imagine that educators are probably very familiar with that, but parents may not be. And so seeing what it is that our governmental systems are saying that kids should know how to do online and what where the gaps are can also help them sort of think about what they want to do at home. Having honest dialogue. So I think your child is an excellent source for information about what internet look, literacy looks like because asking them what they did at school and when and how they use computers is an incredibly powerful way to both connect with them and the fun that they're having and learning those things and also get information about what's happening inside the classroom. Not because I think that it's nefarious or bad. I think that most of those experiences are in fact net positive and really great, as I've mentioned earlier, but I think that knowing is is really powerful um, because then you have a sense of what you might want to teach or what is already being taught and what you want to reinforce. And so I think that that's a, a nice way to get information. I know that we've perhaps touched on this point a little bit when we've talked about some of the fear and trepidation around AI and other kinds of novel technologies as to some degree being founded, to some degree being sort of more nuanced or the circumstances under that underlying it being more nuanced than people tend to give credit. But what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about children's interactions with voice assistants, with the internet and other kinds of technologies? The kids don't know. I think that there's this really common misconception that, oh, well, because I really limit my kid's screen time or because, you know, my kid, my kid doesn't know what that is. They don't know what the Internet is or that if I give them a simple description of what the Internet is and, you know, sort of place it in this world, if it's a thing on a computer where you can go to and get information from a lot of different sources, I don't know that my kid understands that. And there's this sort of this idea that, kids are, and I think, again, you could take this way past technology, that kids are really young and really innocent. And those things are true, but they're also still interacting with a very rich and vibrant world that is filled with information and they are listening. 
and they do know, and you might not let them have screen time, but how often are you using your phone? Do you solely text or will you ever use a voice prompt in order to get information? Have you ever used it to pull up a song on Spotify in front of them? Is it being used in their classroom? Does their grandmother have one? Does their friend's parent have a Google Home that they use to turn the lights on and off? Kids are just sucking up information everywhere and they're getting experiences as our world gets bigger and more connected and more instantly connected. Uh, They're getting all these experiences and you are not the end all be all of your child's experiences, which is as it should be. Those broad experiences will help them learn, but don't take for granted that they know a lot of stuff really pretty well. I learn from the kids that come in to do my studies regularly, and they will tell me things about the internet that I didn't necessarily know. And some of those things might not be the truest things, but it's almost always a fun learning moment for us both. This is a recurring theme that comes up on this podcast, that people do not give kids enough credit. Um, So I appreciate that this is playing out here too. And I really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. This has been so fabulous, Lauren. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. That's all we have for you this time, curious listeners. Check back next month for great content from the table. And in the meantime, give us a like if you liked this episode, subscribe and follow if you loved it. We'll see you next month.